So today's king is another fairly well-known king named Solomon. Solomon is a child of King David, and actually he's a child of David and Bathsheba. Um, Solomon is an interesting character, and and we're going to look at a lot of the intricacies that go here. I think the, the best way to understand Solomon is to understand him as you look at his entire life as being the wisest fool that's ever lived. That's not really a compliment, in case you're keeping track at home. That, that's, that, but that's reality. Um, I'm just going to glance through the first 10 chapters of Kings. Uh, I'll have you in, in chapter 3 here in a second. If you get to 1 Kings 1, the transition is happening. It's David's uh, last days. It's the end of his reign. He's coming to the end of his life. Um, there is uh, his son, Adonijah, another son of David, tries to take the throne, um, thinking that when David dies, it his, it's his uh, but Nathan, the prophet, you remember Nathan, and then Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, they, they approach David and they um, kind of appeal to David that, no, we want Solomon to be king. And David um, listens to them and, and crowns Solomon as the next king. You get to chapter 2 and David charges Solomon. He instructs Solomon. He, 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 he tells them, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to stay faithful to the covenant that you have made with God. Stay faithful to God himself. And so it's this, this beautiful and encouraging uh, admonition um, from David to his son Solomon. But then right after that, it gets a little weird because David says not only, you know, be strong, be faithful, but then he also says, and we have some enemies, and you know what to do. A little awkward there, but David tells Solomon to go and kill all the enemies so that you maintain control on the throne. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 is, is where we come into contact with Solomon, and he, and he is coming into contact with God. And if you look at chapter 3, verse, um, verse 5 is where I'll start. We have this interaction between Solomon and God that really sets the course for a lot of Solomon's reign. He says this in verse 5, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said to Solomon, Ask, what should I give you? So, so, so David, or, sorry, God says to Solomon, you, you ask me, and I'll give it to you. What, what do you want? And Solomon's reply, verse 6, says this. I want you to make sure you, you, you keep an eye on some of the key themes in his reply. You have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. Lord, my God, verse 7, you have now made your servant, Solomon, king in my father David's place, yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So what Solomon says, God appears to him and says, hey, you ask and I'll give it to you. What do you want? And Solomon says, you have been faithful to my daddy. You have been faithful to me. Please continue your faithfulness to us. And this is what I would ask. I'm not asking for wealth. I'm not asking for privilege. I am asking that you would give me wisdom and discernment to be able to hear from my people who I am ruling over so that I could judge in, in, in their lives and I can make wise decisions. So, so give me wisdom. And, and God says in verse 10, he was pleased that Solomon had requested this. 
So God said, because you requested this, didn't ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, which some commentators, and I don't necessarily disagree, think that God's trying to just kind of give him a little one there. Because you remember Solomon already killed his enemies because David said, we have enemies, you know what to do. So God says, you didn't ask for the the death of your enemies, but you asked discernment for yourself to administer justice, verse 12, so I will therefore do what you have asked. I'll give you a wise and understanding heart so that there's never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I'll give you what you didn't ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. Verse 14 is key. If you walk in my ways, if you keep my statutes and commands, just as your father David did, I'll give you a long life. So so now Solomon has asked God for great wisdom, and God has said, I will give you that wisdom. Did it actually happen? Did Solomon receive wisdom from God? The author wants to make sure we know it did, and and I can't tell the story better than it's written. If you skip down just a few verses in chapter 3, starting in verse 16, I'm just going to read the story because the author does a fantastic job picturing for us wisdom in action from King Solomon. Then two women who were prostitutes came to the king, and they stood before him. And one woman said, Please, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was in the house. And on the third day after I gave birth, she also had a baby, but we were alone, so no one else was with us in the house, just the two of us were there. And during the night, this woman's son died because she laid on him. She got up in the middle of the night. She took my son from my side while I was asleep. She laid him in her arms. She put her dead son in my arms. So when I got up in the morning to nurse my son, I discovered he was dead. That morning, when I looked closely at him, I realized He was not the son I gave birth to. No, the other woman said, my son is the living one, your son is the dead one. The first woman said, no, your son is the dead one, my son is the living one. So they argued before the king like that. The king replied, this woman says, this is my son who is alive, your son is dead. That woman says, no, your son is dead, my son's alive. Bring me a sword. They brought the sword to the king. And the king gave the command, cut the living boy in half. Give half to one, half to the other. The woman whose son was alive spoke to the king because she felt great compassion for her son. No, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't have him killed. But the other woman said, Ah, he won't be mine or yours. Just cut him in two. And the king responded, give the living baby to this first woman. And don't kill him, because she, in fact, is his mother. And all Israel heard about the judgment the king had given, and they stood in awe of the king, because they saw that God's wisdom was in him to carry out justice. Now there's, there's the little wisdom, huh? That's some bold wisdom, too. Um... But it was a demonstration of the fact that God indeed had answered Solomon's prayer for wisdom. 
So, so, so now all of the nation, the end of three says, that all of Israel hears about how much wisdom Solomon has. And then you get to, to chapters four and five, and what happens is there's preparations being made for the building of the temple, and there's treaties being made uh, between kings, and materials are being accumulated so that the, the temple and the palace can be built. You get to chapter six and chapter seven, and in chapter six particularly, you see the temple of God being built. It's this intense seven-year project, and it's just as ornate as it could possibly be. You get to chapter seven, and Solomon has his own palace built, which is also pretty ornate. The throne that he sat on was an ivory throne, and it was covered in gold. Because you know, if you can, why not? So so Solomon's living in the lap of luxury in chapter six and chapter seven, and then you get to chapter eight, And in chapter 8, at the culmination of the temple being completed and the palace being completed, King Solomon actually leads a huge dedication service for the new temple. He brings the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies that they had built. And you you read in chapter 6 the description of the new temple, and it is mind-blowing. You you talk about the the holy place, which is the outer um, courtyard. Then you get inside, and it's the Holy of Holies. And they built these two huge uh, cherubim, these big angelic beings with wings, and the wing touched one wall, and the other wing was in the middle, and the second one stretched the other way, and so there, from wall to wall, there was wings of these cherubim, and then in the middle, the Ark of the Covenant was placed, and, and, and it was and actually one of the things that stood out to me, it's funny, as I was rereading it this morning, it says that all of the stones that they used to build the temple, they actually cut in the quarry. And they cut them to size, and then they brought them in because they did not use a single hammer inside of the temple because they didn't want to make noise when they were building God's temple. Any question as to why it took them seven years, right? So, I mean, they, they spent time in this, and in chapter 8, Solomon dedicates this with, with great prayers and great celebrations and huge sacrifices and, and, and worship, and, and it continues on and on and on, so much so, in fact, we're told that the party that they had at the culmination of the dedication of the temple, that party lasted for 14 days. That's a party. Um, so they're having a great time. You get to chapter 9. So now, in chapter 8, King Solomon prays to dedicate the temple, and in chapter 9, God responds to Solomon's dedication prayer. And what I want you to look at in chapter 9 is starting in verse 4. Because in chapter 9, verse 4, it's the second time now that God has appeared to Solomon. It's the second time now that God has been very specific with King Solomon. And he says this to King Solomon in verse 4. Actually, you know what? Let me go back and and, and read verse 3. God says to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your petition you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple you have built to put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. See, now remember this. The temple was built in such a way that it was supposed to be the meeting place of heaven and earth. In fact, when you read through some of the temple description, you find that there's, there's a lot of imagery with gold and jewels and, and, and pictures of angels and, and fruit because the temple itself is actually a picture, the Garden of Eden, a time when God actually walked with Adam. And here, the temple, God says, I, I will put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. God will be present with them. Verse 4, but as for you, King Solomon... Catch these if statements. If you walk before me as your father David walked with a heart of integrity and in what is right, doing everything I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, 
Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, just as I promised your father David. You will never fail to have a man on the throne in Israel. So if you walk before me like David walked, if you keep my statutes and ordinances, then I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. Verse 6, if you or your sons turn away from following me and do not keep my commands, and if you go and serve other gods and bow in worship to them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I gave them, and I will reject the temple I have sanctified for my name. So, so, so the second part, so, so if you walk before me, and if you keep my, my commands, my statutes, then I'm going to establish your, your, your kingdom forever. Now, if you or your sons turn away from me, and if you go serve other gods, then I'm out. And Solomon, you're on your own. Pretty dark, isn't it? Or is it? I mean, what's interesting, you get to chapter 10 and you realize that God has been faithful to his word. You, you look at chapter 10 and it's this weird story about this queen who shows up to, to, to visit King Solomon. And she comes into Solomon's presence and it's the Queen of Sheba, which is just an awesome name to begin with. Queen of Sheba arrives and in verse 4, well, she comes, let me, before I get to verse 4, she came to test him with riddles, it says. She wanted to see if he really was as, as wise as he said he was, as wise as everybody else said he was. She came to Jerusalem with a very large, large entourage, camels bearing spices, gold in great abundance, precious stones. You know this lady's wealthy when a camel shows up with spices on it, okay? <laughs> she came to Solomon, she spoke to him about everything that was on her mind, And Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. God's being faithful to his promise to give Solomon wisdom, right? Verse 4, when the queen of Sheba observed all of Solomon's wisdom, when she observed the palace that he had built, the food at his table, the residence of his servants, his attendants' service and their attire, his cupbearers, the burnt offerings he offered at the Lord's temple, it took her breath away. She, she couldn't believe what she was seeing. Never had there been a person walking the face of the earth with such wisdom. Never had there been a person walking the face of the earth with such wealth. The queen was overwhelmed. I mean, how, how wealthy were they? If you flip over to 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 14, the weight of gold that came to Solomon annual, annually sorry, was 25 tons. So every year, Solomon was receiving into his treasury 25 tons of gold. That's about a billion dollars worth of gold annually, and that's just gold. That's not talking about everything else, verse 15, like the things that came from the merchants, the traders and merchandise, all the Arabian kings and governors of the land. That's just gold, a billion dollars annually. Solomon's doing just fine. And all you can say is, he's doing just fine because God's faithful. God's faithful to his promise and his wisdom, just as his seen and experienced by his people. It was seen and experienced by the, the queen of Sheba. In, in fact, let me go back here and read this to you in chapter 4. Um, it was, says this in chapter 4, verse 32. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. 
he spoke about, now listen to the things he spoke about. I mean, the, the picture that the author is trying to give us here is that he spoke about everything. He spoke about trees, from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop that was growing out of the wall. He spoke about the animals, birds, reptiles, fish, emissaries of all the people sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. See, 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 God had done what he said he would do. He gave wisdom to Solomon like had never been seen before, like would never be seen again. God was faithful. God was faithful in the power that he gave to King Solomon. Verse 26 of chapter 10 says he accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. I mean, he's building his army. His power is growing. God is being faithful to him in that. God is being faithful to him in the wealth. I love this statement in verse 27 of chapter 10, that the silver was as common in Jerusalem as stones. I don't know about you, but that's where I live too, right? I find as much silver in my sidewalk as I do dirt. I mean, that's how wealthy they were and how God was heaping wealth upon them and God was blessing them in commerce. Continue down, verse 28. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and Ku. The king's traders brought, bought them from Ku at the, on, at the going price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 15 pounds of silver and a horse for nearly four pounds. In the same way, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of Aram through their agents. I mean, he is involved in commerce like has never been seen before. He is doing deals with countries that normally are trying to wipe them out. That's the last point. See, the other thing that God blessed him with in his faithfulness was peace. Chapter 4 makes mention of the fact that, that Solomon had peace on all of his surrounding borders throughout his reign. This is the golden age of the kingdom of Israel. This was as good as it could possibly get. And it all came as a result of the covenant that God made to David that his children would be their God if they were faithful to him. And here in Solomon's reign, the people got to see what God meant when he said it. And to be honest with you, when you come face to face with that level of wisdom, that level of power, that level of wealth, that level of commerce, that level of peace, the word that comes to mind isn't like wow or awe. It's ridiculous. It's just stupid how faithful God has been to them. but actually it's not nearly as ridiculous as Solomon's response to it all. See, God is faithful, but then we go on to find out that Solomon isn't. Chapter 11, verse 1 says this. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. They must not intermarry with you because they'll turn your heart away to follow their gods. But to these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 who were concubines. And they turned his heart away. So before we talk about that, um, I, I just want to tell you, I'll give you this passage, you can look it up later, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, particularly verses 14 through 20. 
In that section of Deuteronomy, what, 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 what Moses does is he writes out from the, the words of God the fact that someday Israel is going to have a king. And when you have a king, I want you to keep this in mind. Okay, do not allow your king to do three things. And he lays out three things. Don't allow your king to collect horses, especially from Egypt. Okay, now rewind. Just about two minutes ago, I read this portion over here about his horses. Solomon's horses were imported from where? Egypt. And God had said, no, 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 no. Do not allow your king to collect horses, especially from Egypt. So Solomon missed on that one. Do not allow your king to collect wealth. Oops. Missed on that one. Do not allow your king to collect wives. Uh, he, well, I mean... He didn't have a thousand. He probably only had seven hundred wives. That's okay, right? Wait, no, no, a thousand wives. I know what you're thinking. You're like, man, I thought this guy was the wisest man in the world. I'm not very smart, and I know that ain't a good idea, right? I mean, you think a thousand wives? I mean, we tend to. So the problem is that when we hear that, and I'll be somewhat careful. We tend to think that the problem and the downfall of Solomon came down to the fact that, 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 that he was a, a sex addict. But, but if you have a thousand wives, you do have some sort of addiction. I'll just say that, okay? But, but there's a whole host of other problems. How do you remember anniversaries and birthdays? And, and here's the one that, honestly, this is stupid, but it's real. I mean, how, how, can you remember their names? I mean, I run into many of you in town, and if I see you out of the context of Uniontown, I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> hey, lady. And I feel horrible about that. I really do. But imagine Solomon walking through his palace like, hey, am I married to you? <laughs> it's a horrible situation. It's, it's, it's terrible. But there's, there's a lot more going on here than just a, a lust for exotic Women, because in actuality, in these ancient times, these kings would marry the daughters of other kings to guarantee peace between the two countries. We get a little hint of that when it says that the women he married were all princesses. And the reason that kings would marry the daughters of other kings was to, to protect themselves. The idea is this, if your daughter is married to me, you are much less likely to attack me. So it's more about security than it is anything else. The problem was that, that, that God explicitly told Israel back in Deuteronomy 17 to not do that. They don't need treaties with other nations because God's their security. Solomon wasn't just, just wasn't satisfied with all the promises and, and the wonderful faithfulness of God in his life. He needed some extra insurance. So here's what happened. Gradually, Solomon grew attached to these women, and they turned his heart away. For, for most of these women, Solomon had built them all their own palace. And, and in that palace, they'd um, build an altar to whatever god they had worshipped back in their home country. As we're about to read over time, Solomon wasn't just tolerating the existence of those idols. He was actually actively participating in the worship of them. Look at, look at verse 4 of chapter 11. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. 
He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites, on the hill across from Jerusalem. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their gods. It's not, and I'm going to make a little bit of a joke, but I don't want you to lose the severity of this. It's not like Solomon had wives that had a different liturgy than he did. It's not like Solomon was a good old-fashioned Baptist and he married a Presbyterian and, uh uh-oh, we're going to have a little conflict. These idols that these women were worshiping, I'm not going to go into each and every single one of them, but they were known for prostitution in their worship. They were also known for child sacrifices in their worship. This, this wasn't just a little bit, okay, so you pray before you do the Lord's Supper or do you pray after you do the Lord's Supper? Oh, we do it differently. No, this is, you murder a child to please your idol. Okay, let's do that. You would think with how good everything started, Solomon would have seen how faithful God was to him and have been content and, and, and more satisfied with God's goodness to him, but, but it seems like he just wanted more. That's how sin works, you know. Every single one of us, that, that's the, the, the pattern of sin time and time again. We're, we're completely satisfied, but then, then somehow we become convinced that we're actually starving to death. And then in our, in our, our hell-bent pursuit for independence, we slowly begin to choose other things, lesser things, over our faithful maker. See, God was faithful to Solomon. Solomon is not faithful. But then, God is faithful again. And, and this one's not necessarily good news for Solomon. Look at verse 9 of chapter 11. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this very thing so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. So then the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this and you didn't keep my covenant and you didn't keep my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and I'll give it to your servant. See, remember, God had said, if, if you walk before me, I'll establish you. If you and your kids uh, turn away from me, then I'm going to cut you off from the land. And that's exactly what God is doing here. He is keeping his word. He's being faithful to what he promised Solomon. You turn your back on me, and I will walk away. So now, the rest of Solomon's life is marked by his enemies rising up against him. It's marked by his servant, Jeroboam, leading a rebellion against Solomon. It's just a, it's a, a miserable ending to something that began in an amazing way. So what do, what do we learn from this? What do you and I learn from this? Okay, well, then just, uh, just don't marry so many people. Okay, that's one. You can go with that. <laughs> um, be careful of the company you keep. It, it, it's, it, it's not like Solomon's wife 
the Ammonite, walked in one night and said, hey, I know you're a God-fearing man, but what I would like to do is to sacrifice that little child that lives next door. You in? And he was like, sure. There are slow moments in our lives, just intentional, tiny steps that lead us to do things at some point when taken to their end that we never would have imagined doing when it first started. It's like turning a boat. You get a big old arc. That thing doesn't turn on a dime. It takes some time. But many of us make the foolish choice at the beginning and eventually it leads us to some place we never expected to go. So be careful who influences you. Be careful what you allow to influence you. Uh, what did Solomon learn from all of this? Well, the good news is we don't have to guess. Solomon tells us very clearly in a book he wrote at the end of his life titled Ecclesiastes. Why don't you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to get there. Um, if you want to follow along a couple little things in the way, you can start in chapter 1 and turn along with me. But in Ecclesiastes, what we find is the real wisdom of Solomon. In Ecclesiastes, what we find, in, and this is the way I picture it, and I may be completely wrong, but my, my imagination, when I close my eyes and I think about Ecclesiastes and, and Solomon actually saying these things, you've got old curmudgeonly grandpa Solomon sitting on the front porch. And he's like, listen to me, kids. I'm going to explain to you what really happens. I know what you want. I know what you desire. I know what you're pursuing. But, and it's so dumb, but this is probably what an old grandpa curmudgeonly guy would say. But I've been there and I got the t-shirt. And all of us grandkids roll our eyes. And he begins in chapter one of Ecclesiastes. He says, let me tell you about this. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility futility. Everything is futile. Okay, at first it seems like Grandpa may need a hug, um, a little dark, but he walks through and he says, what do we gain from all of our efforts? It's, it's this cycle that we're on. It's like sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. We are living a life on a treadmill, folks. And it happens every day. I get up in the morning, I go to work, I work. I come home, I eat my dinner, I fall asleep in front of the television, I go to bed. I get up in the morning, I go to work. It's this cycle that just keeps happening. And Solomon says, stop, stop thinking you're going to make it something wonderful because let me explain it to you. This is, this is really the truth. You can pursue all those things, but it's just like a sunrise and sunset. It's the treadmill. You can pursue wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. My mind has thoroughly grown grasp wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. And know what I learned? It's a pursuit of the wind. You're chasing something you can never catch. And even if you were able to catch it, you got nothing to show for it. Chapter 2, he says, let me, let me explain this to you. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. I increased, oh, let me go back, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to test pleasure. I'm going to do everything I could possibly do. I'm going to go narcissistic. I'm going to throw myself into all these things that I, hedonistic, I'm sorry, and I'm going to live as pleasurable as I can. And you know what I found out? Empty. Laughter. I'm going to laugh at anything. I'm going to go, go stand-up comedy all the time. You know what I found? Nothing. I explored with my mind wine and good foods. 
Yeah, didn't help. I increased my achievements, verse 4. I built houses. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted every kind of fruit tree. I constructed reservoirs. I got male and female servants. I had slaves that were actually born in my house. I owned livestock. I mean, you talk about it. I had it. I amassed silver. I amassed gold. I love this part. I gathered male and female singers for myself. Okay, so basically what he did was he would listen to iTunes or Spotify, and he wouldn't just buy the album. He'd purchase the band. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. I took pleasure in all of the struggles even. And what was my reward for all my struggles? When I considered all that I had accomplished, when I considered all that I had done to to achieve these things, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. Here's the deal, kids. I have done it all. And there's only one thing that's constant. There's only one thing that you can depend your entire life upon. And I want you to know what it is without having to experience all that I experienced. Because all that stuff I accumulated is just a puff of air. And in the big picture, in the view of eternity, none of it's going to leave a mark. Don't fall for the lies. Don't fall for the lies. Chapter 12 tells us exactly what his his point is. Verse 13, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God keep his commands. Hear that from the voice of a man who slowly slipped away from following God and obeying him. Has lost everything because of the choices he made. He looks at you and he says, kids, listen. Get about all that. Fear God. Keep his commands. Never allow anyone or anything to push him off the throne. You, you keep him the very center of everything you're doing. You keep him the, the focus of your gaze. You never lose focus. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Because that's what real joy is. That's what real wisdom looks like. Stop running on the cycle that everybody else runs on. It, it's, I'm not going to turn that. It reminds me of the story in John chapter 4 where Jesus shows up at the well and this woman comes to the well like she does every day to get water. And, and Jesus begins a conversation with her and, 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 and he quickly <clears throat> identifies her, her greatest need. Her greatest need is to get off the treadmill. And it's not just the treadmill of going back and forth to get water because she does. She says, so, so he, he says, I have a, a water that you can drink from and you'll never thirst again. And she's like, oh, please tell me about that because I'm so sick of having to come to the well to get water every day. And he says, okay, I will. Why don't you go get your husband and bring him back? She says, I don't have a husband. 
And this is the sly smile on Jesus' face had to creep out. He's like, you're right. You've had five. And the dude you're living with right now, he ain't your husband. And she's taken aback. You must be a prophet. Another smile had to creep out on Jesus' face. And she didn't know the half of it. The basic message that Jesus shared with that woman that day is you're running on the treadmill in all of these relationships you're running and you think the next one's going to fix the previous one. The reality is you need to step off the treadmill and you need to worship God in spirit and in truth. Fear God. Keep his commandments because that's what true wisdom is. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for being gracious to us and kind, um, for being faithful. You are faithful. And, and God, every single one of us has experienced your faithfulness. And, and, and even if we sit down and think, and we're, just, we're thinking about all the horrible things that have happened, God, the, the greatest picture of your faithfulness is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus Christ came and took upon himself the nature of man and lived among us. He engaged us where we are. He sought us and pursued us while we were sinning. He willingly laid down his life for us on the cross so that we could have peace with you. God, that, that's... Um, that's faithfulness. God, I, I thank you that even in our sin, you're faithful. Your, your word never changes and you never lie. And so when you tell us that there are consequences to our sin, you are not lying. So Lord, I pray that this morning that someone here who may be pursuing sin whether they know how deep it is or how shallow it is, God, I ask that in this moment that they would put the brakes on and they would repent. They would stop, they would turn, and they would run right back to you. God, someday we're going to stand before you. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would live in such a way that when we stand before you, it's pure celebration knowing that our very creator who loved us and called us and saved us is pleased with the life that we lived in an effort to put a smile on his face. Lord, may we live a life that's marked by true wisdom. It's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.